Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Kit Gillett, a freelancer based in Bucharest, Romania. Kit is a big deal freelancer and regularly contributes to the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Economist, writing not only about Romania, but all of Eastern Europe. We know each other from back in China, where he was one of the first journalists I met up with when I returned to China after college, trying to be a freelancer myself. Kit really made me believe that it was possible to make my way as a journalist in China and was very supportive when I was first starting out. He has probably reported from more countries than any journalist I know, reporting from all over Asia, not just China, before he relocated to Romania in 2013. Here he takes us through his career and highlights some of the stories he did in the Philippines about voluntary crucifixion, cockfighting, and people living in a cemetery. Having freelanced full-time for something like eight years, Kit also has some great insights into the ups and downs of the news as an industry. This is also our 15th episode. I can hardly believe it. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for all the support getting the podcast off the ground and listening episode after episode. Also, thanks to all of my guests for trusting me in an untested project. I'm sure there will be dozens of episodes to come. We're still in early days. But we'll start to see some changes as I get into uncharted territory, interviewing people I know a bit less well as I talk to people in new countries and at new publications. If you would like to nominate anyone you think would make for an interesting interview, email me at foreignpod at gmail.com. That said, when this episode comes out early Sunday morning, I'll be on a plane somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean on my way to Spain for two weeks to report on COP25, the United Nations Climate Conference. I will cover the negotiations over how to implement the Paris Agreement, the principal structure for countries to confront climate change. I plan to keep a particular eye on Brazil and China because I speak their languages, but it's also a tremendous opportunity to stretch my legs as a reporter and try something new covering the conference overall. So the podcast will be going on a hiatus to allow me to focus on this reporting trip. We'll take a break through the holidays and return in January. Rest assured, this is a temporary break. I already have an interview recorded with someone in Africa. Stay tuned for more details on that. And I'm arranging some others. Keep an eye on our Twitter account, at ForeignPod, or watch Facebook.com slash ForeignPod for more about our return in January. And if you want to follow my reporting from the UN Climate Conference in Madrid, my handle on Twitter is at Jake Spring. Okay, now on to the episode. I'm very pleased with how this turned out, and I think it's a fitting one for the 15th episode milestone. Here it is, my conversation with Kit Gillett, a freelancer in Romania for the New York Times and many others. Okay, I'm talking to Kit Gillett, a freelancer based in Romania. Thanks a lot for making the time to talk to me, Kit. You're very welcome. If you could just describe where you are, what time it is, your surroundings, and what kind of work week you've had. Uh, well, you've caught me uh, at a good moment. I'm Right now, I'm sitting in uh, the courtyard of a very picturesque old villa in a second-tier Romanian city called Turda. Normally, I'm based in Bucharest, which is a heavy, polluting kind of metropolis. But I'm actually attending a journalist workshop this weekend. I'm doing a couple of panels. And so you've caught me on a very nice day uh, where I'm trying to basically start my weekend a little bit early. It's been a good week. I've been pretty busy filing some articles that were overdue or just about due. And I've got one more that I'd like to finish this week. But if I don't finish it, I'm sure the editor won't be too annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a workshop for Romanian journalists, I imagine? The place I'm in is the former home of uh, Romanian 
Ukrainian diplomat and after the country kind of turned communist, he was outside in London and he was part of the kind of outside community trying to keep Romania in the news and trying to get help to communist Romania, you know, trying to help those fighting to get it back into a more democratic path. So this workshop is part of, you know, an attempt to help kind of form a stronger journalistic community here in Romania. There are some amazing journalists here, but journalism is underfunded everywhere and in Romania it's particularly so. So this workshop is bringing over or bringing up some foreign correspondents and foreign editors who are going to give some advice, going to give some feedback on reporting on global events and delving into the dark spaces of journalism. So there's an editor from the FT here and someone from the AP and myself, an editor from Hungary as well, and a very good investigative Romanian journalist. I think we're the the main panellists over this weekend are hopefully going to prove to be valuable sources of information. And then the idea is to know how you got to where you are now, going way, way back to where were you born and what was it like growing up there? First, I'm quite curious to know if you found during your you know dozen or, or more episodes that you've filmed so far, whether there's quite an even split between those who are very clear on the path they wanted to take into journalism and the more accidental journalists. You know, I'm very much in the latter category, you might say, but I'm curious if you're finding quite an interesting split. Yeah, I would say, especially since I went to university where there was a big journalism school, the people who went to the journalism school usually, I mean, they knew in high school they wanted to be journalists, which I consider pretty early. But then, yeah, some others accidentally got into it, which, yeah, I'd say it's pretty even, which is surprising considering when I graduated, it was so hard to get into journalism because of the financial crisis. But a lot of people still ended up there, even if they didn't mean to. So I was born in in England, obviously, in the south coast near a town called Hastings. I'm actually from a little village that's called Battle, where for history buffs, it's where the Battle of Hastings happened a thousand years ago. So I grew up in the UK, went to university and studied English language and ancient history. And I liked the idea of journalism, but I also liked the idea of archaeology and things that allowed me to delve into stories, really. So I didn't do student journalism. I mean, when I was at high school, I did a week or so at a local paper, but that was more kind of curiosity. I never wrote a single article for my university student newspaper. I didn't have that drive. I never wanted to go into a a newspaper in London and start from the ground up. So the only thing that was really clear to me was I wanted to leave the UK. Not that I didn't like the place. It's just that after I'd finished university and I'd already spent 21 years in the country and I felt that was probably enough for now. And so I graduated university and pretty much left the country. I got a teaching English qualification, like a month-long course, just to give myself the ability if needed to earn money as I wandered. And then very shortly after I left university, which was in 2004, the tsunami happened. So the tsunami that hit Thailand, hit Sri Lanka and caused widespread devastation. And I ended up basically going to work for an NGO in Sri Lanka that was rebuilding houses that had been destroyed by the tsunami. So very shortly after the tsunami, I was in a very rural area of Sri Lanka helping to build these houses. Now, this was comparatively a fortunate area of the country. This was on the west coast where people had managed to flee. There hadn't been much death. Not many families had lost loved ones, but most families had lost 
objects, their homes, their possessions, their documents, their everything. So, you know, I've spent, can't remember how long exactly, a bit less than a year in this community building houses. And that started my journey in Asia. And then from there, I moved to Vietnam and spent basically a year living in Saigon, in Ho Chi Minh City, in southern Vietnam. And there I was doing some English teaching to pay the bills. That's when I did my first real bit of writing. And I was doing some volunteer work at a UNICEF halfway house for street children. And from there, I moved to China. And that's when my journalist career began, really. Sure. Wow. So you went straight from the UK to Sri Lanka. You somehow found that job and they sent you over there? Pretty much. I moved to Spain for about two and a half weeks, <laughs> but that doesn't really count. I, <laughs> I moved there, started looking around for a teaching job or something, and then got very impatient and realized that maybe I wanted to go further afield than Europe. And so I went back to the UK and actually got offered a job like a day after I'd got back to the UK. So that could have been a very different path taken. And then, yeah, I basically, the tsunami happened and through roundabout means I managed to get this opportunity that took me to Asia and then I would spend the next decade living in Asia. I mean in the US somebody moving and living abroad is viewed as a quite weird thing and parents often think it's strange. In the UK I get the sense because it's a much smaller country it's not necessarily that strange but what was your family like and how did they react to you wanting to go and live abroad and get out of the UK? My dad's now retired, but he was a high school English teacher. My mum was, is still really a social worker and a family therapist. So no journalism there. Although my dad has published some books on the area around where I was born using old postcards and photographs to look back into the history that way. But regarding me running away from home as such, I think they had long prepared for it from the age of 10 or 11. It was very clear that I was going to spend parts of my life overseas. You know, I have older siblings. I have one older sister and then some stepbrothers and sisters. And several of those had spent time abroad a year or so traveling or doing ski season. So living abroad for short periods of time was quite normal for my family, not quite to the degree that I've taken it. Gotcha. And it sounds like if you were finished up by 21, you didn't take a gap year or anything. So did you have much experience abroad? Did you have any concept of what Vietnam was like, for example, or was it more just like you were abroad? Do you heard about it? You thought, why not move there? So I, from an early age, I'd traveled on holidays. My mum did the brilliant thing of when the Berlin Wall fell, she took me and my sister out of school that following Easter, so Easter 1990, and basically took us for a month around some of Eastern Europe because she wanted us to see it before it changed too much. So we went to Poland, Czechoslovakia, as it was then, and Hungary. So over two summers, we spent a month wandering around these countries. They were still right in the throes of the end of communism, the start of a market economy and the return of democracy. So I think that and then obviously many subsequent trips got my interest in the world heavily stoked. Regarding, sorry, I've forgotten the second half of your question. Just how you got from Sri Lanka yes. to Vietnam, if you'd say never been there before, what made so, you decide to do that? So after spending that time in Sri Lanka, this was right at the point before the civil war kicked off again. But things were even at that point getting a bit sensitive and dicey. And I decided 
at that point to move on. Now, actually, I had a friend of my sister's was working in a school. She was an English teacher in a school in Saigon. And so she suggested I apply to that school, which seemed like a good idea. And I'm, I've always been a big history person. I've always studied history and reading history books and exploring history. So for me, again, the Vietnam War was a period that I was very interested in academically. And so I felt, yes, Vietnam would be a very interesting place to spend some time. You said that's where you did your first bit of journalism, is that right? And just uh, what was it, out of curiosity? It would have been listings, magazines, basically, local publications, like film review or event stuff. It was very uninspiring and very uninteresting stuff. I can't quite even remember what those first things were. But again, it wasn't what I was doing in Vietnam. It was very much just something on the side. Someone asked me to do it, and I said, why not? It was when I got to China that I seriously focused and seriously decided that journalist was what I wanted to be and journalism was where I wanted to spend my life, really. So describe how you got to China then and what was the thing that triggered you to realize that journalism was what you wanted to do? I arrived in China in mid 2006. This was at the point where the country was gearing up for the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And it was very clear that the world's attention was on China more than ever at that point. And so I was very interested in it and felt there were a lot of stories to do. And it was a very interesting place. I actually arrived in China by bus. So I took the bus, oh, wow. a little cramped little minivan from Hanoi across the border. I think it was $6 it cost me to cross to the border and stop in the nearest city on the Chinese side. A couple of days before I arrived, I went on a website and applied for a, an English language job in Nanning, the city, and got it pretty much straight away. So by the time I got off the bus, someone picked me up at the bus stop and took me to some accommodation. And I spent my first seven, eight weeks in China living in Nanning, learning <laughs> some of the language and just getting a bit acclimatized. You know, I was never actually planning to spend much time there. But the idea was I didn't want to go straight from Hanoi to Beijing. I wanted to suss out a little bit and maybe have a chance to learn a bit of the language and just get a little bit of an understanding before kind of delving into a city like Beijing. And And after seven, eight weeks, I took another bus to Hong Kong, picked up an F visa, a six-month visa, and headed to Beijing. And again, when I first arrived, I did a little bit of English teaching to pay the bills, but was very much at that point looking for writing opportunities. And at that point, there were actually some very good listings magazines in the city that still exist today. So quickly, I started doing, again, some film reviews, book reviews, and then I started doing some architecture pieces around the new Olympic stadiums where I would find a way to talk to the right people so I could go with an architect into the stadiums before they were finished or into the water cube and kind of write some longer features on those. And yeah, that's when I really kind of started doing journalism, really started pursuing it properly. What set that off was just the few things you had done in Vietnam that you re was enough for you to realize this is what I really want to do? It was more that I love stories. It's as simple as that. You know, I'm one of these journalists that the writing part is very secondary. It can be very laborious and it's not the enjoyable part of being a journalist. The enjoyable part is the ability to wander up to anyone I like really and ask them the questions I want to ask and have them answer them and that never gets tiring and that's an amazing thing for a curious person to be able to do that and that is really what I love about journalism, that ability to go into different environments, into places that are not familiar to me. And again, that's a big part of foreign correspondent 
agency, you know, you're in alien places for you and being able to talk to people to try and understand their world. And that's really what drew me into journalism. Sure. Yeah, I totally agree that I'm definitely more into the reporting part and the talking to people part than I am into the writing part. So you were in Beijing starting from 2006. So you must have been there quite a while. And were you a freelancer the whole time? Did you do some full-time jobs at any point? So I arrived in mid-2006. And as I said, I started off, I was doing a bit of English language teaching, but increasingly doing journalism. And actually very shortly after arriving, I got hired to write some guidebooks. So I worked for this company that would produce guidebooks for smaller Chinese places, cities or areas that are not particularly well known. The idea being that this company would be paid by the local governments to make them a guidebook in English they could then use to promote their area. So I think I have the dubious distinction of having written the guidebook that managed to go out of date the quickest of any guidebook in the world ever, <laughs> I imagine, because one of the books I wrote, I mean, I co-wrote it, was on a place called Dujangyan in Sichuan in southern China. And it's a beautiful area. I spent, I think, three or four weeks there and we wrote this very, I think, very interesting book. But the book came out and then I think about three weeks later, the Sichuan earthquake hit. The earthquake hit about uh. 50 kilometers away from where this city was, where this area was. And so a half of what I wrote about ceased to exist three weeks later, which was obviously very devastating for the region, but also meant the book was pretty useless except for a historical relic. And then after that, in a quite fortunate way, there was a business magazine in Beijing called China International Business. And they had this idea, very brief idea, that they would write these travel guides, little kind of inserts to their business magazine, you know, offering advice for foreign business travelers going to, again, second tier or third tier Chinese cities. So, you know, you're talking Americans coming over to open a toothpaste factory in Anhui province, and these inserts could give them quite valuable advice on just what to see in the cities, what to do. It was a very short-lived idea they had. I think we ended up doing two of them. But at that stage, they'd signed me as a staff writer at the beginning of this process with the idea that I would devote half my time to those and half my time to the business magazine. And I very quickly knew I didn't want to do those guides. I wanted to concentrate on the business magazine anyway. So I wasn't at all sad where those guides were deemed not so profitable. And then I was left to be on staff at the business magazine. So I gave myself a crash course in writing about economics and business and finance because I'd not had that experience. And then I spent two and a half years working for this business magazine out of Beijing that was covering all things China. And it was English language. And yeah, I started off as the junior person. And by the end, I was basically the co-editor. Two of us ran the magazine by the end. And it was great. It was We were a small team and it was a monthly magazine. So I got to experienced the whole evolution of a monthly magazine. So I was involved right from commissioning to writing sections of it, to editing, to layout, to choosing photos and fonts and headlines, and then dealing with the digitals. And so it was a real learning experience. And then at the end of that, at that point, I was feeling ready to go freelance. And then Does actually, that take us through the Olympics? or That takes us through the Olympics, yes. So I joined that business magazine at the very end of 2007, very beginning of 2008. And I was with it through the Olympics and then up to 
basically 2010. And yes, it took us through the Olympics. But more interestingly, it was for a business reporting side. I joined and then, you know, shortly after the Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, the financial crisis began in the West. China injected huge amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy. So suddenly there were all these amazing infrastructure projects happening and all this money that China was spending. I think it was almost $700 billion that they were spending to make sure that the financial crisis didn't heavily impact China. And so I was vicariously along for that ride, which was a very fascinating time to cover business in China. And then just when I was feeling like I wanted to go freelance and have a bit more ability to wander, the South China Morning Post came knocking and they basically offered me a job as a features writer in their Beijing bureau. And I got offered this opportunity and it was one that I didn't feel I should pass up. So then for a while, I joined the South China Morning Post. The idea was to write features and longer form and colourful kind of pieces from China to go nicely with their more daily news. And you found transitioning between feature writing and business writing. Did did you have a preference? Did you like doing them both? I did. And I, you know, in fairness, I still do them both. But in the end, the South China Morning Post job wasn't quite, I, I arrived at a kind of a bit of a transitional point for the publication. They brought in some outside editors, I think, from the Wall Street Journal. And I'd been brought in by the kind of the new team as part of this attempt to move the publication in a slightly different way. And there was quite a lot of pushback from some of the those who'd been at the publication for a long time. And in the end, most of those editors left and that path was kind of reversed. So in the end, I didn't do as much features writing. It was a lot more daily writing that I ended up doing and fitting in features where I could. But it was still it was a fascinating time. This was around the time of Liu Xiaobo's detention and arrest and imprisonment. And it was really, again, a fascinating time. China, as you, as you know, is, is always a fascinating story. It's incredible how much you could write about the country and never run out of stories. Yeah, definitely. There's no lack of things going on, whether it's booming or whether now the economy slowing down. This takes me through, I was doing some deep Gmail research to try to figure out who put me in touch with you first, because we first got in touch in 2009, but then in 2011 again, and I realized I don't think either of us remembered the first time, the second time I got in touch with you. So the first time I got in touch, you must have been working at China Business International, it is, right? China um, International Business, yeah. China International Business. Dave Green, who I knew from Asia Weekly and who's been working journalism jobs around Asia for a long time, put me in touch with you. And I think you said, we're, we're only looking for interns. We're not looking for full-time people. And I said, uh, okay, and moved <laughs> on. But then uh, two years later, when I actually did move to China without a job, just with some money in my pocket, Alexandra Stevenson had put me in touch with you. So I emailed you again, um, not mentioning at all that we had been in touch before. And uh, that's when we met up. And I remember meeting you in a cafe and you, if it was 2011, I had thought you I, were freelancing. I probably would have been at the South China Morning Post, but it, I, I think I've probably still been at the South China Morning Post. I left right at the end of that year. But yeah, okay, I, sure. so, I mean, you were at Asia Weekly for a while with Alex and with Tom McKenzie and Mitch Moxley and that crew, weren't you? Because people at Asia Weekly have gone on to some impressive careers. You know, Alex is uh, in Beijing with the New York Times and Tom McKenzie's Bloomberg TV in Beijing and, and Mitch was executive 
executive editor at Maxim for a while and is now holding a similar role at a Dow Jones publication in New York. So that Asia Weekly crowd that you were part of, you know, the people who've gone on to have some very impressive journalistic careers. Yeah, definitely. I was an intern at Asia Weekly, so I wasn't there that long. I was actually the intern the summer of the Olympics. And I believe Alex was interning at that point, too. She might have stuck around longer. I can't quite remember. So I predate Mitch, although me and Mitch do cross paths a bit later on. And yeah, I mean, I remember that's where I met Dave, who had also put me in touch with you. And I remember it being a very invigorating experience. It was my first time really working as a journalist besides as a student journalist. And it was run by this kind of eccentric publisher who wasn't very good at managing the business side, honestly, I think we can all say. And uh, so when the magazine folded, I think it actually turned out well because everybody spread out and kind of got after it and, you know, pursued the next thing and everybody ended up at good places. It was also just an incredible time to be a journalist in China those years leading up to the Olympics and then after that to the expo in Shanghai. You know, it was such a great time for those who didn't want to necessarily do the step of working, making the coffee in on Fleet Street or in New York and then slowly working up and spending four or five years getting onto the metro desks and then another four or five years until they got the chance of having a foreign posting. You know, going to China at that point was a real way of skipping some rungs in the ladder if you had the get up and go. And there were so many freelancers from that period who were ambitious and who were driven and, and saw that China was this incredible story and that because of the language and because of the distance and because it seemed so alien to so many people that there, there was just this demand for China stories that wasn't being met. And that was incredible for like young freelancers like myself and like yourself and many of those who were around us at the time. And yeah, and it was also loose on the visas. <laughs> Everyone was on the like three, six month visas going in and out of the country. And I mean, especially with the Olympics and everything, like the government was turning a blind eye to it. Through most of my time, they were. It was only in the last couple of years that they began to tighten up on that. For me, I was definitely circumventing the financial crisis in the U.S. because I graduated in 2009. The journalism scene was a bit depressing in the U.S. at the time. And in China, it's like nothing had happened, just like you said. Things went on as usual. So yeah, I, I remember meeting you in the back of a cafe. Maybe you were at the South China Morning Post at that point. Maybe you weren't. I remember you were trying to bash out some sort of banking report that <laughs> somebody had browbeaten you into doing. You basically said that you kept saying you didn't want to do it and they kept offering you more money. So you decided you couldn't pass it up. But you basically described what you just described to me, this demand for stories like that, this big freelance scene. And I remember I also got coffee with Mitch Moxley and he had just gotten his book deal. And all this just sounded amazing to me. And I was like, wow, this is where it's at, like freelance and write books. And if you have the motivation and you're willing to take the risk and move here, then you can really make it happen. That was maybe a little bit naive, but uh, <laughs> it was enough to like, you know, think, I can really do weapon. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Naivety, don't, don't underestimate naivety. It's very useful at times. The amount of time foreign journalists have very naively leapt into a situation and yeah, things can go wrong, but it gets some incredible stories by just being naive and just going for it. Definitely. There were some periods I freelanced, but I quickly ran out of money after meeting you and Mitch and got a job in Shanghai at China Economic Review, which slightly different format, but probably similar to your experience at China International Business. 
years. And also in two years, I ended up as the editor-in-chief, which, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, yeah, only happened in China, that you could be in your mid-20s and be a big editor at some publication. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. And as a freelancer now, the fact that I have this business and economic writing background is incredibly useful because most journalists can write news stories, they can write spot news. It's these kind of niche areas, if you're a freelancer, that are really valuable because there is always demand for those kinds of articles and they normally pay a bit more. And having that experience is, you know, I didn't think about it at the time when I was in China. I just got offered an interesting job that I thought would be a good way of starting my journalist career properly. But yeah, in hindsight, it's been very useful as a skill set that I learned. So you finish up at South China Morning Post and you go freelance full time. How long did you do that in China? And at what point do you start getting bigger commissions for international publications? I was lucky at the business magazine. They were okay with us freelancing. We were all ambitious journalists in our 20s or early 30s. And to stop us leaving to pursue other things, they were happy for us to freelance as long as we kept our day jobs and it didn't impinge on our work. And so even when I was at the business magazine, I had bylines in foreign policy, in The Guardian, in Forbes magazine Asia, and maybe the Toronto Star and the Sydney Morning Herald, so these kinds of publications. So I had already started freelancing while having a staff job. And then when I joined the South China Morning Post, I wasn't allowed to do that. So I didn't freelance for that time. But I was itching to travel. At that point, all my journalism had been in China. And I was very curious about the rest of Asia. I'd been on holidays to a few places, but I wanted to explore. And I had some friends who were photographers. And we started planning some trips up to Mongolia and in various other places. And, you know, I was surrounded by quite inspiring people that were constantly on the move. People like Adam Dean, who's the New York Times' photographer for Southeast Asia now. And he was constantly off to Myanmar or off to Thailand to cover coups and military uprisings. And so at the end of my time at the South China Morning Post, I was already kind of looking to really embrace freelancing. And again, I was very lucky to have quite inspiring people around me. At that point, I was living actually next door to Jonah Kessel, who's now the director of cinematography at the New York Times. But at that point, he had been dealing with the revamp of the China Daily, and he was looking to go into video work. And so the two of us started plotting some videos that we wanted to do together. And we ended up doing half a dozen videos together, starting just in our neighborhoods, some pieces on the hutongs, the alleyways of old Beijing. And then we did some pieces up in Mongolia. We followed Jane Goodall around for a couple of days. And we did some interesting pieces together before he then went on to greatness uh, with the times. Uh, I know Jonah not, not very well. So, so yeah, so I basically left the South China Morning Post. I probably left the South China Morning Post on a Friday and on the Monday I was on a bus to Mongolia. And straight away I started doing these long trips where I'd go with a photographer and spend three or four weeks in a country and planned it in advance and do maybe eight stories in that time. So we would have pre-sold four or five and there'd be a travel story in there and then a profile of someone interesting, whether it's the 
Mongolian poet laureate or whether it's an interesting politician or in the case of Cambodia, a, a Vietnam era war photographer who can't leave the place really because friends of his died and he's still searching for their remains. And then amongst those, there would also be a couple of maybe environmental features and some hard political news if that was happening at the time. So I very quickly kind of transitioned into freelancing and really doing a whole range of different work for different kind of publications. Because again, I was finding for many countries in Asia, there wasn't much coverage. It's obviously a big sadness that newspapers are going through such struggles. And one of the big places that gets cut is foreign bureaus and foreign reporting. So nowadays, very few publications have foreign staff. And that's bad for coverage. But if you're young, again, if you're a freelancer, that does lead to opportunities. If you're a self-starter and if you suddenly contact an editor and say, I'm in Mongolia and I have these story ideas, chances are they've not had a story from Mongolia for six months or a year. And they're pretty happy to diversify what they've been covering. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of publications outside of China have very sparse staffing. I know like APs cut way back in a lot of services. But anyway, so you do that for a few years. And then when is it that you move to Romania? So I moved to Romania in mid to late 2013. So, you know, at that stage, I'd been based in China for six, six and a half years. And it's an amazing, fascinating place, China and it's incredible and there are so many stories but as I'm sure you can also attest it wears you down being a journalist in China is not that easy there are hassles there are problems there are stories that you find it very hard to cover it's frustrating that you can never talk to officials and it's hard also the pollution is bad for you know five months in winter so after six six and a half years there I was feeling burnt out I was feeling like I needed a change and my then girlfriend now wife I started telling her that I needed a break from China. We'd met there and I was kind of suggesting maybe we try somewhere else for a period. The idea was just to move somewhere for maybe a year or even six months and then come back to China because we were both heavily tied to the country. And she's remaining in and we started looking around at options. And there was a Chinese company that was building the largest solar power plant in Romania at the time. And they were looking for someone in that industry, which my now wife is in that industry and was then. And they were looking for someone who could speak English, Chinese, Romanian, and knew the industry. And that was basically her. <laughs> so we talked about it. And again, like for me, I was quite fascinated. I didn't know too much about Romania. I had not been before, but the region fascinated me for a while since visiting, you know, Czechoslovakia in Poland in 1990. And I became aware of foreign news in the world in a way at the time of the, the Bosnian war and the wars in ex-Yugoslavia. So I was quite fascinated to try living in this part of the world. So we came and the idea was that we would spend nine months a year here and then the solar park would be finished and we would then return to China or maybe Hong Kong or Taiwan or somewhere. And then never quite happened. They wanted her to stay on. They had other projects. They had issues with the park, with the regulatory environment, and they needed someone to manage it and she was interested in doing that. And I took a little bit of time, but I'd kind of started to establish myself in the region and there were some fascinating stories happening. And so we just kept extending. And, you know, now it's been, well, six years now and I'm still fascinated by this region. Yeah, it must have been quite the transition because, I mean, you had figured things out very, very well back in China. I mean, it sounds like it took a little bit of, to adjust to Romania, but at the same time, I would imagine Romania, like you said, it's not like 
lots of places have people based there. So I imagine you can be the guy in Romania for a lot of different publications. So how, how did you find the transition? I mean, I was very lucky in the sense that I had these relationships with editors from quite a few prominent publications in the West. And I also had friends who worked for the New York Times who, you know, I'd done some pieces for the New York Times, but not from China because they have their strict visa issues. So I'd done pieces for the New York Times from Mongolia and from Vietnam. But when I moved to Romania, I reached out to my editors who I had a decent relationship with and to two friends who worked for different publications and said, can you put me in touch with the relevant editor, the Europe editor? Can you put in a good word for me? Or can you just, you know, introduce? And so my first month or two in Romania was a lot of talking to the Europe editors at all those publications. You know, I'd been doing stuff in The Economist in China. And so I was then suddenly needing to build a relationship with the Europe editor. And the same with The New York Times and The Christian Science Monitor and The Guardian and all the publications that I'd been doing little bits for from various places in Asia. I was now still wanting to work for them. It was just transitioning to new editors and building those new relationships. And that took a bit of time and also just understanding what was happening in the region. So understanding what were interesting Romania stories, but also interesting Bulgaria stories and Moldova stories and Serbia stories and Kosovo stories. And yeah, it took a little bit of time, but also I arrived at a very interesting time for the news because maybe in my first year, there was the big protests in Turkey. I didn't actually go to those, the Gezi Park ones. But when my done happened in Ukraine, Christian Science Monitor sent me there. So I ended up spending quite a bit of time covering my done in Ukraine and the protests there and doing stuff at Al Jazeera as well from there. And remind me what my done was. It was the big uprising in Ukraine in 2014, where people took to the street despite it being freezing conditions and basically occupied the center of the city and overthrew the government, really. And there's a lot more to it than that. But these protests lasted for quite a long time. And in the end, there were people shot and killed. There was quite a few clashes between the security forces and the protesters. And it got quite violent at times. But it was a very important story back in 2014 at that time. And then for Romania, the political situation got really, really intense in 2015 with huge protests. And the political uncertainty and chaos has basically been at the heart of Romanian issues for the last four years. And that's given me, again, a huge amount of work. You know, I do a lot for the New York Times. That's probably my main publication at the moment and for the last couple of years. But there was a period where there were massive protests. And, you know, every day I was having to decide almost who I was working for that day, whether it was The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist. It was a pretty intense period for about three weeks where it was really hard to almost not let people down. There was so much demand. But that's obviously extremely rare for a country like Romania, which most of the time is kind of out of the news. Sure. Yeah. But wow. Like having all those places knocking on your door, wanting you to report is even if it's a short time, it's kind of a freelancer's dream, I imagine. But stressful too, I know. I've been very lucky both with my timing. You know, I've arrived in this region at a very interesting point. So I was in Greece during the financial crisis there. I've been across lots of countries. I've been sent to various countries by publications. And this region is fascinating. And there are not many people based here. There isn't a foreign correspondence club of Romania because there aren't foreign correspondents in Romania except for me and one or two others. And it's the same across the region. The big Western publications, the Guardian, the New York Times and the Washington Post, these places do not have anyone between Warsaw, Budapest and Athens. So if you're willing to be here and work 
for multiple different publications. It's more than full-time work. Sure. There's your advert for young freelancers who I'm sure <laughs> are not thinking about uh, Romania. I would be curious well, that, that, to know that where... Would, that would be my advice. You know, my advice to young freelancers is go somewhere other people are not. It's fascinating. And a lot of times I actually contact editors and they don't know what's happening in Romania. They literally say, what's interesting in Romania? We haven't had a Romania story for a year or two. And they're very open to hearing ideas. I'm in a fortunate position. I get to write maybe two stories for the New York Times every month, perhaps one or two and similar for other publications. But there are a lot of other publications I work for. I did a piece for The Atlantic earlier this year from Moldova. And I think that's probably the first Moldova story The Atlantic's had for about five, 10 years. And so by being in a place that is off the radar, if you've got a good sense for what makes the story and you have a bit of experience, you can show a few clippings. There really is a lot of opportunities. Definitely. I would be curious to know what locations are magneting in journalists these days, because I feel like China's kind of cooled off because of how difficult it is to get a visa there these days and cracking down on that. So I wonder where everybody's headed. I don't know is a simple answer. There are pockets in Europe, places where there are small pockets of journalists, places like Belgrade still have a little press pool and Warsaw and Budapest, these hubs, especially the hubs that have good, cheap, low-cost flight bases so that the journalists can bounce around the region. They're hubs and I think Bangkok is probably similar with the Myanmar story and with interesting things happening in that region and cost of living, I think you'll find that's still a hub. But yeah, it would be interesting to know back in 2006, 2008, it felt like China was the one to go to if you were ambitious and young and were able to relocate to a strange new world. I'm not sure where that is nowadays. Yeah, me neither. Um, okay. So one question I wanted to ask, because when we were setting this up, you had quite like, if you don't want to be interrupted, it should be nine to five. And I thought that was interesting coming from a freelancer. And I was just curious if you keep as a freelancer in order to keep your sanity, like very set work hours in order to maintain a division between your personal life and work. Not at all. No, I, I I'm constantly working until 1am, 2am in the morning. No, the, the issue with that was that I have a three and a half year old daughter. And while she can be kept away from rooms for a period of time to allow me to record, I was thinking an hour or two hour chat might be beyond her abilities to stay quiet, to stay you know, occupied elsewhere in the house. So I do quite a lot of radio and TV kind of spot news. Like if there's an event again happening in Romania or in the region, like I'll often get called up by the BBC or by France 24 or Al Jazeera or Deutsche Welle or places to discuss things and my constant fear is always that my daughter will <laughs> suddenly appear in the back of the screen or will decide <laughs> that she needs to talk to me. So no, the idea, I just suggested a, a daytime hours just because that would be when I could guarantee peace and quiet to have this nice long chat. Gotcha. So in, in terms of work-life balance, it's still kind of work all the time, on demand, that sort of thing? Yes. I love being a journalist and that's almost a simple as that and I have a difficulty saying no to interesting work and so pretty much always have too much work on there's never a, a moment where I don't have six or seven articles on the go that I'm drastically trying to work my way through with varying deadlines so no my work-life balance is not particularly balanced just because I do struggle to say no to editors I like or to interesting projects and outside of family time I tend to let that dominate my life probably a bit too much for my own well-being <laughs> oh yeah yeah I 
I think it's fairly common among <laughs> freelancers. I like I remember I say I kind of knew Jonah because I remember he like took a month off or something and we hung out a couple times, but then when he was working it was just like impossible to hang out with him. Like he just was too busy. I've done work with Jonah where the two of us I remember once we were doing some videos for Save the Children actually. The deadline was ridiculous. I like, I think the idea was I think there were five, six or seven minute video profiles of different people who had disabilities who were being helped by Save the Children or had managed to reach a stage where they were quite self-sufficient. And, you know, we had to travel across five different locations in China to cover this. And I seem to recall us having about a week to put all these videos together. And I was literally living in his studio for a week and just ordering in food and then sleeping on the floor. He would barely sleep and I'd kind of grab a two-hour nap, wake up, and he would still be sitting there editing with all the videos kind of being formatted on the screen. When he works, that man is, yeah, is a demon. Yeah. I guess before we run too long, we should get into some stories. And I like to start with, rather than ending on a down note, start with the story that got away, a story that you wanted to do, but it didn't come off for whatever reason. Either you couldn't sell an editor on it, you couldn't prove it, a reporting trip that went horribly wrong, what have you. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a couple of stories that got away from me just because, as I said, I used to do these trips where I'd go away for three weeks, four weeks and pick up seven or eight stories and had pre-sold some, but some were on spec. And there are a few times where there were stories that I thought really good that I was trying out that didn't quite work. There's one story that I'm still quite sad that I didn't do, mostly because I did do the story. I actually had it all. I get my act together and tell it, really. So just before I moved to Romania, I did a reporting trip in Cambodia and popped back over to Vietnam for a brief bit for about five days. And I had this idea of doing a story about the Vietnamese offspring of some of the American soldiers from the Vietnam War. And so there was a photographer I knew who'd done some work on this already. And so he'd put me in touch with the fixer that he'd been using down there. And I basically went and spent five days going around interviewing these men and women who were now obviously in their, let me do the math, in their, you know, 40s, who were visibly not just Vietnamese. You know, these were people whose fathers had been African-American GIs or their fathers had been Caucasian. And they look quite different. And because of that, they had been heavily stigmatized in the 80s and 90s. Their childhoods were heavily influenced by their fathers who had obviously gone back to the US. But these children had grown up at a point where America was the demon that had been defeated by the North Vietnamese. Uh -huh. And that these children were kind of left behind and they got bullied. Most of them were not really in formal education. They had had really difficult lives because of this. And most of them didn't really know who their fathers were. A few of them had photographs that their mothers had saved of their fathers back in the 1972 kind of thing in their military uniforms. And mm -hmm. so I spent five days spending time with, I think I probably interviewed six or seven of these people in and around Saigon over this period and spent time in their houses and talked to them and saw their lives and saw their own families, their wives and kids. And, you know, many of these had actually married people who were similar to themselves just because they'd been stigmatized and that brought them together in a way. This was quite a powerful story that I was really wanting to do. But I finished that trip and then a week later I was on a plane to Romania and I had some other work that I was finishing up and then it got put on the back burner a bit and then suddenly a year had passed and I hadn't done anything with it. And then I talked to a few aspirational publications. I talked to like the Smithsonian and, and that geo and it didn't quite fit for them. And then in the end, I kind of just let it drop. 
but I'm quite sad about that. I, I thought it was a very powerful story that I wanted to tell. Maybe one day I'll go back and do it because I do think it's something that hasn't been covered or I've not really read the definitive story on that. I've read a few small pieces about it, but I would like to do a larger piece on that. And I think it's something that is very strong human interest piece that would have quite a wide readership. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, for people in the US, just the Vietnam War looms so large in a lot of people's minds that, yeah, I think there would definitely be a market for that. All journalists have probably been in a position of, uh, you know, that story they didn't quite get done. Some of those you actually end up remembering better than the stories you do end up doing. Of course, because you haven't told it. Once you've written a story down, you've almost released it. It's cathartic. It's gone. You've told it. People can find it. Whereas when you haven't actually told the story, then it lingers, I find. And you find yourself retelling it just because it's not been put down on paper. Right. Yeah. And then onto some stories you did pull off. You can walk us through how you got the idea, how you reported it out. But also I'd be curious how it happened with getting it placed in a publication. So it's interesting. I was trying to think about what stories I wanted to highlight. More recently, a lot of the stories I've been doing are more spot news stories covering developments and often they're incremental so the political situation in Romania it's something I've covered heavily especially for the New York Times it is one story but it's one story covered in 25 different articles over the last two years but I really love actually doing some of the environmental pieces I've done have been really satisfying ones to do I used to do quite a few features for a magazine called Geographical which is kind of the British version of Nat Geo you might say it's the magazine of the Royal Geographical Society, which is people who sent Shackleton around the place, and it's where the explorers of the UK congregate. And I used to do these really long features where I would go off a couple of weeks into very isolated areas. And those are the stories that I really love doing just because a lot of journalism can be talking to people on the phone or it's quite limited. So, you know, I'd done a couple that kind of come to mind from those. One was in Vietnam going into the Mekong Delta area and spending days among the community communities that were being affected by rising waters. And, you know, it's a story that many people have done, the effects of global warming, how it's affecting coastal or these regions that rely on certain water levels. But it was still amazing to go down there and spend time. That doesn't exactly answer your question. I've had a few really fortunate experiences where I remember going to the Philippines and in a 10-day period getting kind of three really detailed and really fun features, really in-depth features and one of those accidentally landed on my lap and that was an incredible trip because the idea was me and a photographer that I worked with had gone to cover you know they're very religious in the Philippines you know strongly Catholic and they have each year in a few towns in the middle of the Philippines people are voluntarily crucified um, they literally have nails hammered into their hands and into their feet and they're put up on a cross now they don't have their weight isn't on these wounds which is obviously the the real thing that eventually kills Watch well, is more the starvation that kills but they are held up by ropes so they're not having the, the wounds being pulled on in the same way but they are properly crucified and a photographer and myself decided we wanted to go and spend the days leading up to this with the main person who had been crucified at that point I think for 20 
36 years in a row. And he, wow. he started doing it as penance, I believe. Or maybe it was, I think actually he'd fallen sick and he'd said, if he gets better, then he will do this for 10 years. And then at the end of 10 years, something else happened. I think he was painting and he fell off a ladder from a two-story height and then just stood up and was absolutely fine and decided he needed to do it for another 10 years as thanks. And the year we were going, it was supposedly going to be his last year. He decided this was it. And so a lot of journalists, both local and foreign, turn up on the day to take the photos and to get a quote. But we decided to go several days before and spend days with his family and days with him in the lead up to it. It was such an interesting experience seeing the family prepare. His wife wouldn't go and see it. She stayed at home. And when he went off to have it done, one of the kids would go with him. And the kid would run back at the end once he was down safely and would tell the mum and then she could breathe easy again. And this guy, he had the nails that would be driven into his hands. And he had them sitting on top of his TV for the days before, sitting in medicinal alcohol. And it's his brother-in-law who's a carpenter, who's the guy who drives them into his hands. So it was really fascinating to start digging into that story and seeing the family connections and seeing how each experienced this and how each saw it. It's one of those stories that I loved doing just because I felt like I got under the skin of the story. It was a story that I'd read for a couple of years, but I'd read the kind of the 500 words version of on this day this happens we went and saw this happening and here's a couple of quotes and going there and being able to write 3500 words and having a photographer doing maybe 12 or so photographs doing a gallery that went alongside the text and also having that level of access that meant that when he was being crucified we were the people standing next to him it was one of those levels of access and the depth of a story that you only get by going and spending that amount of time with the subjects and that was a really really interesting story to do but at the same time that same trip we ended up doing a story about cockfighting in Manila just because we'd been introduced to a crew of graffiti artists who are friends of friends and we happened to be in a neighborhood and one of their neighbors invited us along and that ended up turning into a 3,000 word feature just because we went along and then suddenly we were meeting these people and I was curious about the vet who would take care of the animals that survived afterwards and the different roles within that quite unpleasant community but it was still quite an interesting community to see. It was kind of this amazing trip that had those two and then it had a third story where there's a cemetery where thousands of Filipinos live inside the cemetery and generations live there, grown up there and they live in the mausoleums that have been built for the wealthy and they sleep on top of the stone sarcophaguses and so wow. it was one of these trips that was so immersive and so rich in incredible experiences and individuals that really have such different lives such different passion that I've ever been really aware of. Wow, sounds Sounds like quite the incredible trip. And among all those stories, which ones were done on SPAC just without actually having sold them yet? And where did they all appear? So the crucifixion one was pre-sold. That went to an Australian publication called The Global Mail, not to be confused with The Globe and Mail. Sure. Uh, the Global Mail, it was one of these unfortunate, it was one of these publications that came along with a lot of funding and had big aspirations. And it was an online publication that was only doing these long articles they paid well it was like a dollar a word and, you know some expenses and they were commissioning things in the kind of three to five thousand word range they existed for a, i'm not quite sure a year and a half two years maybe and then the backer suddenly had business problems and suddenly lost a lot of money and suddenly and then stopped backing it and it quickly went out of business so i ended up doing maybe four or five articles for them over a kind of a year period but so that one was pre-sold and then the cemetery one i had pre-sold a feature to this geographic 
Geographical magazine. But the, at the same time, the Toronto Star was interested in a shorter piece on that. So I ended up doing that article for a few different publications in very different ways with different subjects and quotes. And then the cockfighting one just was complete accidents, one of those that hadn't been on our radar, hadn't been something we'd planned to do. And then that ended up being a magazine feature, I think even the cover story in the South China Morning Post's uh, weekend magazine. And then on top of that, there were a few other articles that came out from that trip. So it's a 10, 11 day trip that was both very interesting and also quite profitable. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And the other thing I was just going to say is that there's this great book by an NPR correspondent in the Philippines. It was probably in the 90s called Dead Season, where he looks at cockfighting and it's kind of juxtaposed with the death squads. It's an extremely gruesome book, but uh, I would definitely recommend it to a lot of people. They're up for uh, quite grim read. It's really great descriptions of storytelling, really get a feel of what it's like in some of these places in the Philippines, which isn't always very pleasant. And I'll try to get uh, links to some of those stories from you. If I mean, I assume the one for the Australian publication might not be out there anymore since it folded, Yeah, that's, right? that's unfortunately disappeared. The website vanished. But the other two should be somewhere in the ethers of the internet. Sure. And yeah, I'm trying to think of another publication that had globe something global post maybe it was called the global a lot post i also worked for them and they've also gone under yet oh, okay <laughs> so i was that's, wondering that's, that's the thing about freelancing like every year i lose a couple of publications that either cease to exist or their freelance budgets have disappeared but thankfully i normally pick up a couple as well but it's interesting as a freelancer you get a real sense of the media landscape as it changes because you see how the freelance budgets come and go or how publications shrink their foreign staff and actually suddenly have a bit more money for freelancers. And then, yeah, obviously some publications just completely vanish almost overnight and publications that were at one point giving you kind of an article a month and suddenly you need to replace that with something else. Out of curiosity, what would be a, a new publication that's come around? Or is it just that they're new to you? I mean, most of them, I would say, are new to me. I'm trying to think of new publications that have appeared. You have good things like, you know, The Atlantic right now is really pushing and expanding their foreign coverage, which is really exciting, both as someone who reads a lot of world news, but also as someone who greatly appreciates publications that are spending money on foreign reporting and foreign stories. That's great to see right now. They took someone from the New York Times over who's heading that up. They're expanding their foreign staff and they're also suddenly using a lot more freelancers. And so that's obviously not a new publication, but they're a publication that's suddenly investing a lot more in foreign reporting, which is you know great to see. Uh, I guess the next step is is the lightning round. So if you're ready, the first question is, as a freelancer, I guess I'd be curious if you wake up in the morning and if you have some sort of routine, either how you check the news or how you start your days as a freelancer. Because I follow quite a few different countries and because I'm following certain events, I actually use Feedly quite a bit. So I have Feedly, I have kind of news alerts that come in on various things. So I have lots of different technologies in place that make sure I don't miss important stories just because well, I'm trying to keep an eye on stories in seven or eight different countries and it's not always the easiest you know you don't want to have to go constantly to newspapers in each of those different countries to try and find the stories and some of those countries I obviously don't speak the language so I'm relying on English language sources or Google Translate to keep up to date before going there and obviously having assistance. I have various things that help me keep abreast of stuff and help me follow important news stories until I feel it's time to cover them. 
Gotcha. So you wake up and see what's rolled in on all of these things. Wake up, check my emails, check any messages I've received on various platforms, check the football scores and what's been happening in Trump world overnight. And then, yeah, get down to properly scouring what's happening in the regions I follow before trying to then shut all that off and actually focus on writing and not be too distracted. Right. Uh, What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? The Guardian, the New York Times and The Economist are the ones that I go on every day. I rely on those heavily. I trust them. I, I do read a lot of other publications, but those are ones that I go on yeah, every day. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? I mean, The New Yorker, I mean, the writing's incredible and the types of stories are wonderful. And I devour podcasts as well. So I'm not someone who does silence. So if I'm walking even just to buy some milk, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I have something in my ear. So I constantly have podcasts on some American lot of British ones, lots of BBC ones. Cool. I'm always looking for new podcasts. Do you have any particular one you could shout out? I'm a big fan of the BBC ones. So there's something called In Our Time, which is an hour. It picks a person or event in history and has academics on to discuss it in a very enlightened way. Obviously, listen to Long Form. I listen to Desert Island Discs, which pretty much any Brit will know what that is. But for Americans, again, it's like a 45-minute show where a celebrity, they're, they're brought on, they discuss their life but the concept of the show is they're cast away on a desert island and they have to pick eight songs that they can take with them and one book and that's it and a luxury item so it's a show that's been going on for decades and they've had pretty much every famous person you can think of almost over the years on it and they have all their archives so you can literally find thousands of episodes of it and listen to Bill Clinton in early 2000s or you can listen to just just anyone it's it's quite fascinating what is the best journalist piece, article, whatever you have consumed recently. I'm going to cheat slightly and pick a book just because I'm just about to finish a non-fiction book by a Bulgarian writer called Katka Kasabova. It's called Border, and it's basically a non-fiction kind of journey along the border between Bulgaria and Turkey, which is the border on the edge of the EU, on the edge of Europe. In the 70s and 80s, you know, like the Berlin Wall, it was the border between the East and the West, if you will, between Mm -hmm. the communist bloc. And she was someone who grew up in Bulgaria in the 80s and spent time on that side of the border. And it's very interesting visiting these communities there now and using some of her past recollections and discussing. She's a beautiful writer, for one, but it's also very powerful looking at the different sides of the borders and how the relationship is and how borders affect your life. And obviously, that's an important subject right now anyway. I, I haven't read much about this border, and I found it quite fascinating to see it tackled in this way. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. I mean, it won some awards. It came out in, I think, 2017. So it's like two years old, but I've just finished it. Sounds great. It's called The Border by who? It's it's called Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe. And it's by Katka Kasabova. Cool. Is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? I read a lot of football writing and sports writing in general. I find good sports writing is really a craft and it's really quite beautiful. And for an expat, if you will, or for 
for foreign correspondent, you need these certain things that maybe tie you a little bit to back home. And for me, that's, as you would call it, soccer. It's English football. And so for me, I do check to see what's happening in the football back in the UK. And I followed it in the various countries I've lived in as well. Is there a particular team you support back home? Everton, uh, which is a team in Liverpool. Okay. They're uh, middling. They never win anything and they don't lose too badly either. <laughs> Did you pick them because... No, you obviously didn't pick them because you're not from around Liverpool, are you? No, how, how did that happen? Not a, it was the first live game I ever got taken to. I went up to London with a family friend and they were playing against Arsenal. And, you know, I picked a team basically and I picked the ones wearing blue rather than ones wearing red. And it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a kid, it's, it's a very arbitrary decision. And then it becomes a very emotional thing over time. I mean, I've gotten deeper and deeper into American football. It is directly linked to not being around home and yeah just having some sort of anchor but like it's it's a nice connection and when i first moved abroad i liked knowing that my university friends i knew that they would be watching the same game as me time zone away i'd be on a sunday night at 11 p.m watching a football game in a bar in saigon knowing that half a world away many of my friends would be watching the same game it was a yeah it was a nice little anchor to home as you said on to yes or no questions the first one is glenn greenwald yes or no yes yeah because I think there are some people, journalists, who I disagree. I'm not saying with him, but there are some I obviously disagree with their take on things. But I think journalists should be digging into things. I think they should be investigating difficult things. And I think he does an important job of finding things out and bringing them into the light. So, yes. Cool. And then this one's particularly interesting to ask freelancers, I find. Vice Media, yes or no? So I've never worked for them. At the beginning, when they were starting doing video, I remember having a beer with one of their video guys in Beijing who was trying to bring me on board to do stuff but at that time their rates were not high and they're still not high so I didn't take him up on the offer. Some of their work I've enjoyed but a lot of it is quite sensationalized and so I don't have a strong opinion you know I hear all the criticisms but haven't experienced that personally and don't know others who have. And then it depends if you've seen it The Wire season five yes or no? Yes I mean all of The Wire is amazing. Season two I wasn't a big fan of but The Wire is just amazing on so many levels and I get why you bring it up because of the journalistic ethical issues there but just a great program. <laughs> yeah I think season five is great in terms of the vibe of the newsroom and also it's just uh, very entertaining whether or not you want to get into could something like that happen. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? There's not a specific journalist that I want to flag. But for me, I was always fascinated by the Vietnam War. And that's always been something that if I'm picturing myself, every journalist has had the fantasies of being a war correspondent, even if most of us would do really bad at it in mm -hmm. real life. And so for me, those that covered the Vietnam War that were there in Saigon in the late 60s, early 70s, and I know it's wrong. And I know the, the romantic images in my mind are not accurate and it was so many people suffering, but there's a part of me that still would have loved to have been there trying to cover that war. Sure, that's a good answer. I mean, switching places with one of them, certainly. What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? To take a pause when I arrive in new countries or new places and learn the language 
properly right from the word go and just not leap right into feeling a need to straight away do lots of stories. When I first arrived in China and again when I first arrived in Romania, I arrive and I feel like straight away I need to be doing a huge amount of work rather than just taking a breath, taking three months, six months to study the language properly and really get that down and then and only then get into the writing part. I feel I'm too impatient and I would just tell myself to take that pause. Sure. Do you speak Romanian now out of curiosity? I imagine some. I, some, yes. I can watch the news in it and read the news in it. And I make a lot of grammatical mistakes and my speech is not as good as I would like it to be. And perhaps if I'd spent the first six months going to language lessons rather than doing occasional weeks of study here and there when I had the time in amongst other work, I wouldn't have so many gaps. Sure. Yeah. Speaking is my weakest part in Portuguese, definitely. But uh, luckily, it's perhaps not the most important point of uh, journalism. It's, you know, listening no. is far more important than reading. And, yeah. It is. It is. But I would like to speak better Romanian. I still think I've treated it as secondary compared to the work. And I think realistically, if you're planning to spend significant time in a country, it should be the first thing, the priority at the beginning. Sure. Do you think you'll jump countries again anytime soon? Uh, it's not on the agenda. There's nowhere specific that we're planning to move to. You know, if the opportunity arises, um, it's not off the cards, but it's not a short-term goal. What is your favorite book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? So if no one said this yet, I'll be a bit sad. Has anyone said Evelyn War's Scoop yet? Oh, yeah. I th Evelyn Moore's Scoop so, is just, yeah. the, just the best book about journalism, especially foreign correspondency ever. It's just a beautiful piece of satire. It's such a pastiche on being a foreign correspondent, and it's just such a great book. Whatever, it's like 70 years old now. It's still one of the best things ever written about foreign correspondents' work. So yeah, no, hands down. <laughs> Evil in War Scoop. Now that I think about it, my guess is Singaporean journalist uh, Ko Gui Ching picked that as hers. But I've got to go back and read it. I mean, it's a mainstay, everybody says, even the ones who don't pick it. And then the final question Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I mean, as I said near the beginning, there was always a part of me that was also very interested in aid work. And so I think if, if I could do something outside of journalism, I've always been interested in maybe working for Medicine Sans Frontières, not in a medical capacity, but maybe being like on the ground emergency response person, someone who, you know, when a volcano earthquake happens, who deals with getting resources there, deals with the management on the ground, deals with getting everything set up to help as many people as possible. And so I know that's incredibly difficult job but i think that would be something that yeah as you said qualifications aside that would really appeal to me sure yeah gets back to maybe that first sri lanka experience okay so that that's all my questions anything else you think is important to note no don't think so i think that was well covered i'm not sure how you're gonna cut that down but good luck with that <laughs> ah, i always find a way but anyway yeah thanks so much for doing this been speaking to kit gillette a freelancer in romania Thanks for having me on. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kit Gillett, a freelancer in Romania. I'll post links to some of Kit's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. 
Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted sometime in early January. I'll put the exact date on our Twitter and Facebook pages in the weeks to come. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.